Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my co-host, the now a year older than he was, Teos Abadia. Feliz cumpleaños, señor Abadia. Oh, wow. Gracias, Sean. Uh, wait, are we doing this all in Spanish? Uh, that's as much as I've got for okay. today. Yeah, That's fair then. Uh, thank you. It was uh, it was very nice. And uh, and I am now... Uh, I now officially feel mathematically old, though... Yeah. I completely feel young normally, but right. but if I look at the paper, I go, huh. Like, I even had the conversation with my parents. Like, can you imagine you have a kid this old? That's bizarre. Yeah. 50 just seems like an enormous, enormous number. It's like the kind of thing that, like, game books will talk about 50 years ago. Oh, that's a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 50 years ago, Teo Sabadillo was born. <sighs> Ooh, Jeez, yeah. That just sounds wrong, H right? History. Just, yeah. History. Yeah. You, you, you are... Important well, the good in, news, in though, Sean, I, I, uh, I'm possessed of wisdom, for example. I know that uh, podcasting, the origin, yeah, uh, I'm making this up, uh, it comes from <laughs> uh, fishing, where you would cast for pods. I see. Pods is another word for listeners. I know. I don't know. I don't know anything. So apparently wisdom comes with nothing is what I'm really saying. It's true. Age comes with just getting old. Yeah. But speaking but, of podcasts, uh, <laughs> we have a new segment called Deliciously. <laughs> Yeah, li listener tweet bag. Uh, well, you know, it was always the mailbag, listener mailbag, yeah. but very few mail. people actually email us with questions. It's now mostly via Twitter, so so it has to yeah. be a tweet bag. Tweet bag, yeah. And uh, our first tweet asking us a question is from an intrepid young man. I, I, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. It's James in Tiro Queso. Uh, mm. It sounds like he, you know, that's a name that should be a game developer. So maybe <laughs> he'll, uh, maybe he'll go into that field someday. If he but works hard. He exactly. Himself. That's right. Uh, James had this question. Um, we know that TSR and Watsi have both done this whole last edition of D&D &D song and dance before. Um, do you think it's possible now that D&D &D is offering bundles through D&D Beyond that they actually mean it this time? Because if they do a big rules update, they can simply patch the digital version, like a video game or software update, rather than charge people for a whole new version. Obviously, if people want the books, they'll still need uh, to buy the latest printing. But it's possible Wizards of the Coast is anticipating or hoping most folks will be all in on digital. It's one way they could hold true to that promise, though I'm not sure they would, since in some ways that's leaving money on the table. Um, unless maybe you need a monthly subscription plan to use the digital tools, which is highly possible. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, I think we even talked about this a bit uh, yeah. on one of our previous shows. Uh, Teos, what are your thoughts? Uh, I, I think this points at a lot of astute questions, mm -hmm. to which it's hard to know the answer, but I bet that all of these things are underpinning a lot of the strategic decisions, right? And that I think that... Maybe like in, with D&D &D 5e said, oh, this is going to be the last edition. I think they meant it primarily from a, we really like this rule set. We think it can stand the test of time. Uh, we don't think that the rules are as important as the brand. And it was sort of at that sort of simple level. But now I think that statement does mean more. And it probably does involve people at all of the higher levels thinking these kinds of thoughts of, you know, if our sales are so good, we don't actually need to do what we used to have to do where we'd have to launch a 2E or a 3E or a 4E or an Essentials to try to rejuvenate sales. Not only are we 
pivoting off of the brand and selling that brand, but we have the means by which we can create enough energy and bring in enough new uh, audience members that losing a person here or there isn't a problem because we're gaining more in other ways. And so the, the need for that new addition isn't there. Uh, and I think all that's likely true from their perspective. I think the question is, is it going to be historically true? Can you really just go on forever? Because generally there are lots of reasons why you want to update things. We talked about this on the last show. It's not mm -hmm. just whether the rules are fun to play with, but it's things like, do they hold up to today's audience? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and it's just so easy to look over any particular aspect of 5e and go, yeah, that could use a little work. If it were to be a new addition, we'd probably toy with that and improve upon that. So at some point you want those improvements is my feeling. And so the idea of an addition forever, I just, I can't buy into it. Yeah. It's forever is, is a long time. Uh, <laughs> seen I mean, I've seen like, 50 years. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was trying to make a 50 years joke, but, <laughs> but you beat me to it. No, yeah. it's, it's all of this and more. It's right. James is very astute here. He obviously works in the industry uh, for yeah. MCDM. So yeah, this is something that's obviously on his mind and it's on everyone's mind who, who, works in the industry for certain reasons and everybody who plays the game for other reasons. Mm -hmm. And I will say that this whole monthly subscription idea is very attractive to companies. Uh, it's, is it more important to sell one $50 book or get a year long subscription from someone for $5? Mm -hmm. Well, right. You're making 10 more dollars right there and you've got their inform you've got their credit card number you've got their information you've got their email you have a, an avenue through which to market to them which is more uh important in every way business wise than selling someone a book that w is is out of date the moment they open it yeah. so yes that the the acquisition of D&D Beyond opens all of this up for wizards it as does gives, the creation of a vtt right it, precisely precisely uh and so will the game change in the way that p people play it absolutely it's already happening and it will continue to happen when there is a virtual tabletop that wizards gets their weight behind will that change the way people play most likely does it mean every single person will stop playing the game with their friends around the tabletop? No, but they may, as I've seen people do already, everyone's on their uh, iPads or their computers or their phones playing, even though they're all sitting around the table. Uh, the virtual tabletop is a tool that can be used in a variety of ways. And simply saying, you know, for 99, 99, whew, for 999 a month, you get, all the books, uh, or you know, you can buy a book and have access to it. Or if you buy a physical copy, here is the code that you could use. If you are a subscriber, you get automatic access to the book, right? In, in, in digital yeah. format, right? That's what people have been asking for, and now it can be done. Yep. So yeah, yeah. And, and and the beauty of subscription models is that you always have some number which can be quite large. Of mm -hmm. people who just sort of forget to turn it off, right? But aren't using it, right? I mean, I think sure. companies like Paizo have done really well on that, where you just 
you get someone to buy in and, and it, it takes them, it can take them a year to realize, oh, I should have, mm -hmm. you know, turned that pipe off a while ago. Right. And that's all revenue you're getting regardless of what you're making, right? Especially with digital offerings. Uh, you make it once and then whoever buys it, that's all great. Yep. <laughs> as long yeah. as that number is large enough, the rest is gravy, right? Right. And if people right, don't, don't have the funds, don't have the discretionary income, whatever you want to call it, to buy everything, they are still able to get enough to play the game or have the have a situation like we see with D&D uh, Beyond now where if somebody buys the premium package, they can have up to six people use the content in the campaign, et cetera, et cetera, which, you know, it, it transfers the the onus of payment onto one person but they're paying for five other people and wizards doesn't care in that as long as they're getting the money that they need to keep the system going they're they're cool with that so yeah it's a uh, it's, yeah, it, it's yeah. it's fascinating and I, I think that's where it gets into you know what are the motives and what this question kind of touches on is is the the question behind why does wizards want to say that you know we have one edition of D&D &D, and how can they facilitate that through things like patching the rules? Mm -hmm. um, but but it also is the question of whether that really can function long term. And it's right. hard to say. I mean, I think a game like Magic the Gathering, right, the majority of its of its mechanics, um, you know, having a 4-4 four, four monster and how you block that, that all endures. But we see keywords come and go. Mm -hmm. The meta changes. Right. Um, and it's a far simpler game that doesn't have the expression that D&D &D does, right? D&D &D is ultimately very big rule books that you read. Mm -hmm. And the, the other things associated with like adventures and source books are also as much about the creative enjoyment of reading them and the worlds and things that it conjures into your mind as it is anything else. And those things can be very dated and those expressions can yeah. be dated and require a new approach. Um, and, and there's always the, the possibility that something else comes along. And while D and D seems unstoppable, always the reality is that it is possible for something else to come in and occupy market share, significant market share. Mm -hmm. Um, we've seen it at times with similar games, but it could be something that's sci-fi can be something that's movie associated or, you know, mm -hmm. something like Marvel or something like that. There is always that possibility that something comes in and occupies that space. It doesn't even have to directly be role-playing. So yeah. there are reasons why you might want to refresh the property right? sure. to, to, to bring it to a new generation of people to make a big splash and to get everybody to buy everything again. Yeah. And one more step in this process and which we'd mentioned last week could be paring down the rules themselves to a point where, the rules are just the mechanics. They don't carry a lot of the narrative weight. Mm -hmm. You can move that narrative weight to other products that follow. So you won't need to change how orcs work because orcs are, are just a, a very simple set of rules. Whereas the, the story that goes with orcs can be moved to the Forgotten Realms book or to the Eberron book. And they're going to be very different in each book. And those books can contain mechanics. That's true. So now, rather than saying, well, I've got all the rules I need to play in the player's handbook, you could move some of these mechanical 
rules to these other books, which make it more likely for people to say, oh, look, there are several new subclasses here. I'm going to go buy this book. I may use them in my home game, but they're tied to Eberron or they're tied to Spelljammer or whole new worlds that we have yet to see. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. One last thing on, on from my side on, on this idea of patching is that it's really easy to for us in the space that we're in to think of things as if all of the audience is connected and knows all the things that we do, right? Mm-hmm. Is at least as engaged as we are. When I traveled across the U.S. for work and I would find the local gaming store and I would go there, the thing that would always blow my mind is it was not a bunch of people who were connected to the news. In fact, you were lucky if one out of six people understood what Wizards was saying in a given month or even year. Like Mm -hmm. they were so disconnected from the official information. And what that meant is not only did they not know that a particular setting was going to come out. I mean, they didn't know anything until it was on the shelves of their store, right? Mm -hmm. And, And what that meant was the ability to explain to them something was far reduced. And so when you do, when you patch something or you replicate something, right? So like these playtest rules introduce the third type of dragonborn we've seen, because you've got mm-hmm. the player's handbook, you've got this version and you've got a whole bunch of them in fizz bands, that kind of thing, when it just shows up at the table and someone just says, well, I got this from a book mm-hmm. that creates a confusion, right? That, hurts the 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 game and and there are always gonna be people playing in those kinds of ways in home games in stores and and they're going to be buying off the shelf or whatever they find and when when that begins to be confusing right where someone at the table goes no it works this way and someone says no it works Mm -hmm. the other way that does hurt play and 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 it's easy to forget how many people are in those kinds of situations right like i mean some polls show more people are running a home game using their own things than using official adventures, right? So sure. the ability to patch things effectively is, is, is a challenge. Yeah. And that leads perfectly into our second question mm-hmm. about confusion and patching things. <laughs> and this question comes from Greg Marks, who is actually an administrator in the adventurers league. And he says, Hey, Sean and Teos, I'd love to get mastering dungeons take on the D and D adventurers league, putting, uh, OP organized play into the hands of community creators and entrusting their official storylines and epics to premier organizers, uh, along with changes you think we might be seeing soon in the uh, DC is Dungeon Craft. And I'm not sure what the PO program is. I asked Greg to clarify, but he hasn't gotten back to me yet. Huh. Uh, yeah. But yeah, we'll, 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 we'll figure that out. So yeah. that oh, leads- premier organizer. Okay, Premier Organizer, cool. All right, so that leaves, that's yes, that's exactly what it does mean. That leads into our news segment, the first of mm-hmm. which is the changes coming to the Adventurers League. So, <laughs> Teos and I have been involved in the Adventurers League, and before the Adventurers League, it was the Role Playing Game Association, the RPGA, the organized play branch of Wizards of the Coast, for 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, we've seen a lot. And I think Teos has said several times that the only <laughs> constant in the Adventures League and organized play is change. Yeah. It yeah. changes every year, it seems. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a tool that's there, and tools often need to be changed, resharpened, uh, thrown out, and restarted sometimes. If only to test for new ideas, right? And to try exactly. things. And... Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 
Um, so Chris Tulak posted about all of these Adventures League changes on the Yawning Portal website. There is a link in our show notes, so you can just go to the yawningportal.dnd.wizards.com site to find them. We will summarize them here. Uh, Chris said, looking at two primary ways you'll engage with adventure content uh, is playing adventures adapted from official D&D releases. So the hardcover books, the box sets, anything that has Mm -hmm. adventure content. uh, And just if anybody doesn't know, usually this is like a guidance document that's a couple of pages long, maybe a little longer, that just sort of says some baseline information of like, can you play this and play a different adventure? Mm -hmm. Uh, Are there any restrictions on what kind of character can play this so that your player, your, your player character can, can play this experience and then fit into the rest of organized play correctly. Right. Cause you don't want to get like the plus nine sort of doom slaying and then go to your next game for first level characters and, and doom slay all of your your way through the adventure. So there have to be some controls there that tell you how to integrate this into the rest of the release, but it's, it's not giving you any new adventure content. It's not doing anything. Otherwise it's just telling you how to play it within the rules of organized play. And, and to, to step back even further, we may, we haven't talked about adventures league probably in depth in a while. So, you know, the adventures league is, as, as we've said, an organized play program. So what it does is the, the program itself takes on the role of a dungeon master and tells you the player, what content you can play, what rewards you can take out of the adventure, et cetera, et cetera. So even though there are dungeon masters that are running the games above them is this sort of meta dungeon master, yeah, which, it, which is, which is the yeah, structure, which is the organized and, play program. And, and that's what, it, what's brilliant about it. And, and the reason I think, you know, you and I were so attracted to it, uh, in the days of yore was that it allowed you to play at one table mm-hmm. with a dungeon master for organized play and then play at another table with a completely different dungeon master. And your character could progress because there's this framework that guides that play from one table to the other. Maybe yep. it tells you this adventure links to this other one where you can play any of these adventures that are in this tier. You know, it has some sort of rules like that. And your XP, your gold, all those things carry forward so that you can continue playing and you're not breaking yeah. the next table you show up at. Yep. So it, it serves many, many purposes. And there are many, many different ways to run an organized play program to facilitate everything that we've just mentioned. So, uh, one of the aspects of an organized play program is what content can you play and go from one table to another and maybe go from one adventure to a different type of adventure. So in the past, especially with fifth edition and with the Adventures League, the main way that you would play is the Adventures League itself would create a season storyline and you would play through the storyline. It wasn't necessarily completely linear, Sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't, but you know, you, you would move from adventure to adventure and sometimes the plot would be a thread and sometimes it would be completely disparate events, but that's how you played. Um, and it paralleled the theme of the season of, of right. that adventure, right? So right. generally there was a hardback adventure per year. Mm-hmm. And so starting with Tyranny of Dragons, that first season of AL play was a Tyranny of Dragons storyline and it shows a location on the Forgotten Realms map. And you played through to see sort of what happened to that town and how it grew or suffered, and you played a hand in that. Yep. And some sometimes for some seasons they would be very tightly tied to the hardcover book mm-hmm. from Wizards of the Coast. Sometimes it would be the theme would be the same, but it would be far removed from what 
what was happening in in the, the hardcover. So what this says is now there's going to be two primary ways. You play that official D&D release with the adaptation document from, from the Adventures League. Or you play adventures created by the community, including the premier organizer partners. Currently, there are two premier organizer partners, Bald Man Games and Gamehole Publishing, which is getting the Gamehole Con um, mm-hmm. connected. So what that removes is that season. <laughs> that season, yeah. that That content that was being created specifically through the uh, – through the – uh, administration of the Adventures League, and so that's big. Uh, they, they've they've big. they've sort of different seasons. They may have shied away from it, but last season, I believe, you ju- you were supposed to play through Wild Beyond the Witchlight, and mm-hmm. you could supplement it with Dungeon Craft Adventures, which we'll discuss in a minute. But they got sort of got away from that. Here yeah, is right the separate the- thread. Separate Rime of the Frost Maiden was the last season where you really had, you know, ten plus adventures that paralleled mm-hmm. the the theme of the hardback adventure. Right. Uh, but they were their own content, and so you might spend more time with the Goliaths that are in in, in Icewind Dale, and you might, you know, delve into a, a different story that involves, you know, red wizards being present or any any number of ideas as put together by the admins, the story admins of AL and the authors working together. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is prior to Adventures League, you didn't really have this seasonal approach, right? Um, living City, Living Greyhawk, Living Forgotten Realms, just for fourth edition. Yeah. Um, these tended to be just their own stories, often disconnected from the products. And one of the things that was seen as a weakness, interestingly, was, hey, we've got these official product releases and you're not really tying to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's do this. And that's why in 5th edition, Adventures League said, okay, we're going to have this season that parallels. And what mm-hmm. that did that I really liked is mm-hmm. it created a focus on the season. And I think that was one of the keys of 5th edition's growth was this focus on the season. So even if you didn't play Tomb of Annihilation, Mm-hmm. you heard about Tomb of Annihilation as a season kind of effect. And mm-hmm. the ale helped with that because it was now being talked about in stores. It was being talked about at conventions. There were mm-hmm. reasons to have posters up of a Serac or whatever, even if you never met a Serac, because that whole theme just kind of permeated everything. This was another way that that was expressed. And I thought that was very strong from a marketing branding perspective, from a community perspective, to have everybody sort of on the same page. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a little sad to see this go away. Because while things were perfectly fine in Living Forgotten Realms and previous campaigns with their own disconnected storylines, I think there was a real benefit to that community feel, that story feel that a season had. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the flip side of that is when when a hardcover came out and then the Adventures League put out this sort of side campaign that a lot of the Adventures League players would play, Many people weren't playing the the main the main book, uh, right? So I can see how the one of the benefits of the adventures like is creating that community, and if you can still create that community while supporting the main product, the book, the hardcover that's coming out, uh, that benefits the the company by still having that theme, still having that community, but actually engaged with the material. 
that the company itself was creating rather than this entity off to the side that was creating, which wizards had control of sometimes, but not always and to a point, (laughs) you know, which as a, as an owner of the business and as the person responsible for the content, that can be scary to Mm -hmm. even, even though you're working with contractors and the contractors are hiring freelancers. uh, And I, I, and I say this as one of those people, right? Uh, I wouldn't trust me with, with this. So, you know, that, that's, that's another part of it. And I think another thing to that we have to say before we talk anymore is that the longer uh, an addition goes on and along the longer an organized play program goes on, the more confusing and chaotic it gets because you start out with a very simple, simple plan. Even if the plan is complicated, it's the plan and everyone understands the plan and they learn the rules. And so, you know, well, we're going to play in the Forgotten Realms and the or, uh, and uh, Adventures League is going to be in the Forgotten Realms. And this is how it's going to work. And you take your character and then comes uh, all the a super adventure. Well, how are we going to here's a, another adventure outside of the Forgotten Realms. But it's so cool. and We want to incorporate it. Do we start a separate campaign? Do we allow characters from the Adventures League to go over and play it? Oh, Eberron's out. Do, right. How do we handle that? Do we allow crossover? Do we? make a separate campaign death curses out what happens if you die do we change the rules for death right right and and those are interesting questions i when i look at where this is right so you know again where we we take away seasons Mm -hmm. as as being actual supported uh adventure streams and we now say okay you can just play the official book um that is harder to run. You know, what I'm seeing is like at the virtual weekends at game stores, it is harder to run that. Mm-hmm. It is harder to bring a new player into that. Um, it, it is more complicated. It feels more like a home game than it does an organized play program. And it, it is right. hard to run in tight segments of two or four hours. Right. Um, so, so it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, the, Premier organization partners like Baldwin Games and Gamehole write good to great series of adventures, but it is hard for those to feel official. Mm-hmm. Like as much as I like the Moonshays, I find that it it sort of it confuses what organized play is, mm-hmm. and and it feels like if someone chooses to run one of those series it almost feels like they're turning their back on other things and it never felt that way with the season to mm-hmm. me it felt like if someone was running a season it felt like they were lockstep with D, with wizards with the adventure releases it you know it felt timed yeah um but i don't feel that way with these and it, to me it's even further if you go to look at community created content like dungeon craft adventures that expand upon things now we're sort of patching in experiences and while that's on one level very cool i also feel like that strays you a bit from where the expectation is of a community and a program and Mm -hmm. i and i don't know to what extent that does a great job of doing what the program wants to accomplish right where you want you you know when you step back to what does wizards want it wants places that people can gather community and be on the same page share excitement, encourage each other into playing and bonding, and of course, consuming product. Mm -hmm. Um, And you also want a feeling of 
Wizards is great, D&D is great. And the more that you lose control of that quality, the more the, 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 the chances that you're actually undermining that, right? Mm-hmm. And I think Dungeon Craft can do that because there isn't really any oversight of what the quality level is. Okay, so so let's talk let's talk about some of those things that Teos just mentioned. Let's define them first. So Dungeon Craft is the ability for anyone to create an adventure w- within a certain limitation and put that up on the DM's guild and have it count as an official Adventurers League product that anyone can play. So mm-hmm. right as as it's it's a great opportunity, it's a great way for people to get their feet wet and think about designing adventures, not just as a DM, but as a publisher. Um, so in that sense, the product is good. Uh, it does, of course, flood the market with mm-hmm. products and it does take away from that community, as Teo said. Uh, and you can balance those and weigh them against each other and decide once, well, it's still worth it. Or you can decide I'm never going to buy Dungeon Craft. Uh, I'm only going to run the adventures that are officially published. But, you know, officially published then becomes even hazier because <laughs> other than the, the hardcover Wizard or Wizards of the Coast official products, you know, were the Adventures League adventures, even when they were published sort of through Wizards of the Coast, were they official? You know, some people would say yes. Some people would say absolutely not. Um, sometimes people at Wizards of the Coast would say yes, Both, and sometimes yeah. they would say yeah. absolutely not. So, you know, it's it's a complicated thing, and the more, the further along you go in, in the life of an organized play program, the more confusing it gets, the more rules yeah. have to change. One other thing to keep in mind here is that specifically bald man games is a group it's a publisher but it's also a convention organizer Mm -hmm. so it it is contracted by wizards to run D &D at large conventions sometimes wizards of the coast would say all right we want you to run five thousand tables at gen con but we really don't have any new adventures for you to run, mm-hmm. which puts bald man games in a bind because they're not going to be, be able to sell 5,000 tickets or, you know, 30,000 tickets. If they're five, six people per table uh, of content that is a year old that people right. have already played. So bald man games now, according to this AL news is taking over the dreams of the red wizards adventures which were published straight through the Adventures League before. This mm-hmm. now gives Baldman Games the ability to create content that they need to fill tables at these large conventions. Uh, Gen Con, Origins, Winter Fantasy, some of the PAXs, sometimes at uh, like uh, Comic-Cons, different places where Wizards wants D&D run, but they are not in a position to do it themselves. So, Baldman Games now takes over Dreams of the Red Wizards, and they will also continue to publish their Moonshade Isles adventures. Um, this that wasn't in the article, but I have it has been confirmed that they will continue to do that. So they now have several avenues. Um, another of these premier uh, organizers is the Game Hole Game Hole Publishing. Uh, they will continue to publish their Band uh, Bandit Kingdom. No. 
What am I thinking? Border kingdoms. There you go. Confuse my Greyhawk and my uh, border kingdoms. They're border kingdoms adventures, but they will also now have the ability to publish more in this premier organizer since they are a, they run a lot of D and D at game hall con and, you know, possibly now at other conventions if they so choose to expand. So yeah, that's a lot I that think I just this said. Is where, but, and, and this is where I think things get a little confusing, right? So I just looked at how many Border Kingdoms adventures there are. And I see 56 products, probably one of them or two of them are like a guide or sort. But, you know, more than 50 adventures already out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, Moonshades probably has a similar number. And, you know, what ends up happening is that you have the drive to keep... The, the, to fill these convention tables is, is providing a certain type of solution and answering a certain type of problem that is different, is, has an impact on the overall ecosystem, right? Right. And, and there is no solution, right? Like, I'm not saying, oh, this is done wrong. This should be a different way. It, these are the difficult factors. This is why Adventures League organized play changes over time because this has impacts, right? Ideally, you want everybody on the same page. But there's someone who's going to their first convention and wants easy on-ramps and mm-hmm. intro low-level adventures. And there's someone who's the hardcore player who wants to get their character to level 20 with really exciting, epic events. And and someone who's played everything that was at the previous convention and someone who wants to catch up. And so they're, how do you make all those people happy while trying to still represent what Wizards is doing now? Yep. Right? This month, this this season, this quarter, yeah. this year. Those are really difficult tasks. And so it'll be interesting to see how these rules work and for how long they sort of stay feeling this way. Yeah. I, um, when I look at this mix, uh, I don't think that it will stay here for long. I've said this in the past, but, but yeah. I think it's going to need to be continued to be tweaked because I, I think it, this is a little too confusing, a little too all over the place, um, and won't quite give you the the results we're all looking for i think yeah it's it, it is so I have trouble seeing exactly why <laughs> right well it, it is difficult and you're absolutely right in the sense that it can be confusing for someone going to you know, a convention for the first time and that's why things like bald bang games organizations like bald bang games at game hole con need to always keep that in mind and they have the numbers of first-time players coming to their conventions versus versus new players and i think it sort of harkens back to what you said about going to a game store and people not knowing you know the latest news or what's going people going to a convention might be in the same boat and that might not be a bad thing because they Mm -hmm. might go to gen con and they might say i'm just learning dnd and i was told to come here and so Game Hulk or Game Hulk Con or Baldwin Games in the case of Gen Con will have a learn to play station. And hopefully they will have low level content that leads into something that's going on at the moment. So you can have this nice unwrap. And the people who don't know anything about any of this stuff that we've been talking about, don't know about Dungeon Craft, don't know about seasons, don't know about any of this, will just say, Oh, cool. I played this nice learn to play game. And then yeah. they told me to go and I played this first level adventure and people were talking about all these weird things about seasons and, the, but I just played and it was fun. Right. Right. Now, That's hopefully, hopefully uh, these, or, these premier organizations were chosen 
because they know how to do that. And it does these premier organizer uh, partners. It said currently there, which means there might be more coming that right. one of these might be moved off the list if they fail to live up to their expectations. Yeah. Um, but it's important that we recognize that bald man games and game hall con have been doing this for a while. They know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. They, they, they vet their DMs, not just yeah. in terms of have you DM before, but like running background checks. Yeah. Whereas if I say, well, I'm going to run little, you know, little down the river con here with 10 people. I want to be a premier organizer. Uh, I'm, I'm in no position to do that. Right. You can still create your own content through dungeon craft. Uh, this is just, mm-hmm. you know, they've proven that they, know what they're doing and have the ability to carry out what they're, what they're doing. You know, one other thing that I find interesting about this news. um, So a changes to the admins. Yeah. Um, So originally there were six admins and there were sort of three spots uh, that were content manager, creating adventures, community manager, working with the community resource manager, which was sort of directing the authors um, I think content manager, one of those also worked with conventions. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes there was sensitivity lead as well in, in later years, mm-hmm. um, as a official position, but of those six and sometimes there are even seven or eight admins, we're now down to four, Greg Marks, Claire Hoffman, Matt Crook, and Tony Winslow Brill. And those are all fantastic people, but it is interesting to see the number come down, mm-hmm. uh, formally here in, in this, in this announcement. Yeah, but it makes sense that they're no longer going to be creating adventures. So they don't need to to oversee the writing of them. Now, Greg, Greg's position will be dealing with the premier organizers, mm-hmm. um, you know, making sure that the stories that they're telling mesh with what's going on. Claire is going to interact, I believe, with um, with the conventions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ma'at is going to continue a sensitivity lead as well as, you know, do community stuff, I think. And I think Tony's going to become like the, the marketing person. I believe those are the, so in that yeah. sense, I think it makes sense that that's the number they need. And of course, mm-hmm. Travis Woodall, um, who was in charge of overseeing the writing of the, of the adventures is stepping down. So congratulations, uh, yeah. Travis on yeah. surviving. And thank you. <laughs> yes, and thank you. Uh, a couple just other real quick bits of news. Um, Dungeon Craft is going to expand to now include Eberron and Ravenloft. So before it was just some Forgotten Realm stuff. Now it's Eberron and Ravenloft. And there will be uh, the, the Spelljammer hardcover adventure will be part of the Forgotten Realms campaign. And there will be Dungeon Craft available for that, just like it was for Witchlight. So. That's that's the big news out of mm-hmm. the Adventures League in it. The only thing that's missing that I would love to see here is an encounters program. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I just think thinking the same thing. Yeah. I think that's the place where you can have a store runs the same thing every week and that would be perfect. Now you could do that with a hardcover. You mm-hmm. you just you need to tell everyone where to start and where to stop. Uh, and how but, to bring in new people, which is exactly, the hardest part of that. Exactly. But we, we, we'll see about that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to do one more piece of news because we, we went on there yeah, for a yeah. while. But this was this was interesting. So 
Uh, ben Riggs, the author of Slaying the Dragon, uh, was recently on the podcast, and he's been sharing other information uh, on his social media. And he shared something that was very interesting and a little bit sad. Uh, he shared that in he got a letter from Peter Atkinson uh, when when Wizards of the Coast bought TSR. Uh, Dave Arneson, who was the, the co-creator of D&D, along with Gary Gygax, wrote Peter a letter basically asking to be put in charge of TSR, to be put in charge of D&D. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't. I, it hurts my heart to even talk about it. So I'm going to let you be yeah. the be well, that guy. It hurts me too, but but I'll I'll do it. It uh, there there are a couple levels of pain. One is that if you read like John Peterson's recent book, you you see the 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 kind of as 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 authors have and historians have explored the history of this, it becomes revealed that. You know, there are weaknesses to both Gygax and Arneson as co-creators and, and, and what they do in, in their businesses. One of the things that happens with with Arneson is that he's sort of continuously complaining and promising but never delivering. And and it's sort of painful to, to see the historical account of all the things he tries to do but never gets out the door, never delivers on them. Um, and, and how imperfect his creations are and, and, and any of these business prospects tend to not pan out. And so he writes this letter to in 1997 to Wizards of the Coast CEO right after the purchase, basically saying, you know, I want to be put in charge of D&D or at least be involved somehow in operations and planning. But this letter is just filled with typos, you know, how you spell there, uh, how you spell CEO Peter Atkinson's last name. Uh, and I have to look it up, but <laughs> when I have to think about it, but, but I look it up, I do. And, and it's just, it's like, what are those, you know, please use an editor. Here's why examples, but it, it's just, it is a, a sad read in so many places, so many ways. It's a, just riddled with typos. And it's this sort of plea that reveals how even in 1997, he so desperately wanted to somehow be responsible for this game that he'd had a, a role in creating that had so, uh, spent most of his time being on the out, right? Mm, and never yeah. finding a way to get back in. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And you have to, I mean, 97, we're still, we're, we're not quite fully internet age yet. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you can just Google something really quickly. Sure. Uh, but, you know, it's enough that you could probably find a website where it, Peter Atkinson's name is spelled oh, yeah. correctly, for sure, and there is spell checking back then, um, and it, yeah, it, yeah it, grammar, grammar right. existed. Yeah, it just <laughs> you just uh, felt felt so felt. I just felt so bad. Yeah, I felt for bad this too. for this guy yeah. who just wanted so badly and was obviously not prepared mm. uh, for it. So. Uh, the the letter is up, and the second letter that he sent, uh, Ben also has a copy of that, which he said he will be putting up soon. Yeah. So uh, it might be up by the time the show drops. So check that out if you're into the history of D and D. Let's stop the news there. Let's talk yeah. about our main topic, uh, which is a continuation. A double continuation, if you will. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking about 5e. We've been looking at 5e you know, as an addition, as a set of game mechanics, what it does, what it doesn't do, how it's changed, 
and what it might be changing into. And while we were right in the middle of that, the one D&D playtest dropped, <laughs> which was sort of fortuitous because that now gives us a chance to evaluate the same things that we were going to evaluate. Mm-hmm. It's just now we have a clue about uh, one of the possible directions that might be moving. Yeah. And I think we need to also note that this is just the first packet in a long series of packets that are going to be coming out. Doesn't mean this is the direction they're moving. They may right. just be moving in a direction that they know isn't going to work, but they want to see what people say about it. So, and, yeah. yeah that's a question I'm hearing often, which is, are they showing us things because they want our feedback? Are they showing us things because this is what it's going to be and they kind of want us to warm up to it? And sometimes it's a little bit of both, but I do mm-hmm. think they want our feedback, mm-hmm. uh, constructive feedback. Right. Um, because I think that the lesson of D&D Next, which was used for 5e, uh, was a good one for them, right? They they saw that their game got better by soliciting feedback from from the larger community, and the larger the better. So. Right, and more popular when you mm-hmm. know that sixty percent of the people like something, even if it's not the best mechanic, uh, you're still going to put it in the game because it's it's something that people want. So, yeah. and and that's always yeah, yeah. There's a there's a yeah. great presentation out there. I forget where this was done. Where I think it's, oh, no, I can't remember who did it, but two two of the Wizards of the Coast 4E designers walk through what they learned, or sorry, 5E designers walk through what they learned from the D&D Next surveys. And they have all these charts and graphs and they just go mm-hmm. through, you know, what all these responses were and all the fascinating discoveries. And, and it's at a convention or, or, you know, it's sort of like a game design, almost video game design type convention where they're, they're explaining how they went through this process of, of really the, the focus is on how you learn from your audience. It's a really neat, yep. I'll have to hunt that down. Yeah. So we will now continue our discussion of 5e through the lens of the 1D&D playtest packet. So we talked about race last time. We talked a little bit about ability scores. Um, so now we're going to talk about feats. What feats have been in the past, what feats are in 5e, and what feats uh, are in this playtest packet. Uh, so what's... Uh, what's your what's your thoughts start anywhere yeah i mean they hit us right off the bat with the idea that feats are something you're going to get through your background and you're getting them at level one right which Mm -hmm. is a big change because in fifth edition the concept of feats feats are left to later uh and they are an optional rule right Mm -hmm. dms can choose to have feats or choose not to have feats and you gain a feat every four levels, but you can choose to, instead of a feat, take a ability score plus one to two different abilities and that, or the same one, uh, and that is, is offsetting the feat. So that, that sets, and it also sets design-wise the power level of a feat. It equal, it's, it's equal to plus one and two abilities or plus two to one ability scores. Mm-hmm. And, and so everything is kind of judged against that. So we see a lot of feats that give plus one and a weaker benefit or a strong benefit and no bonus to any ability score. And that's supposed to be what establishes the level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, in the past, we've had feats come in as as very instrumental, uh, you know, third edition, fourth edition, feats everywhere. And even classes were sometimes not given certain traits to make them more balanced with others with the understanding that they would get extra feats yeah. to make their own power from 
And the best example of that is the fighter in third edition, which every level was a feat because right. the idea was for you to highly customize the type of combatant you are. Right. And, and that was sort of the candy of the class instead of giving you a feature like, you know, the ranger would get a very specific feature that said, oh, you know, you can hide in these certain wilderness situations. The fighter was, you know, choose a feat. Mm -hmm. And then it was just the attack bonus changing. Um, and, and all of this is meant to differentiate from earlier editions where when you played a fighter, a rogue, whatever, you were always the same as any other. And mm -hmm. the change was just your personality. So this was a way to have the game rules and is a way to have your game rules reflect that kind of character you want to create and allow you to customize it. So you can have a fighter that's a chef and you can have a fighter that's all into great swords and another one that's into fighting with two weapons and, and all that. And so you start just modifying what your character's like and that's great. Um, but the danger of feats, and we certainly saw this uh, with skills and powers in 2E or third edition, certainly, you see that feats are very hard to design mm -hmm. to be equitable. Mm -hmm. they tend to feed off of one another. So if you take power attack, that's one thing, but you take power attack and you take a different feat, that's then suddenly really strong. Or, uh, you know, the great examples are things like uh, Great Weapon Fighter in 5e, um, uh, the crossbow feat, um, mm -hmm. sharpshooter, right? Yep. You, when you choose a certain thing and this feat, you can offset the penalty, reap the rewards, and it just becomes obscene. And so we have that problem in 5e, right? So yeah. the idea of making feats granted always is very interesting. And how mm -hmm. is the game going to balance that? One of the ways it says it's going to balance it is feats now have a baseline level. Mm -hmm. So a level one feat, we are told, are meant to increase player versatility. They do not offer any ability score bonus. And we will see that higher level feats will provide bonuses to an ability score. Mm -hmm. and this is good in theory it's mm -hmm. actually great in theory great yeah. but as teo says it's hard to uh balance them right because now you're just turning feats into a different type of spell right because spells have levels and some people will look at a third level spell and say oh that should be a fifth level spell some people will see a sixth level spell and say well look at the second level spell it does basically <laughs> the same thing so you're getting into a granular level of design that is putting very complicated pieces onto a very complicated machine uh, that hopefully will continue to run while all of these pieces are attached. The and oh, go ahead. We, we just gonna say we saw in some of like some of the some of the other materials that that like say Tasha's the official books that have come out, Fizzbands. We've seen some cases where it looks like. Uh, the power level is growing a bit. And in fact, we're told this, that there's an emphasis on greater value. So the alertness feat, which 5e already has, will now let you additionally swap your initiative with another party member. Mm -hmm. So it's like we're getting a little more candy, which is tasty. I love the taste of candy. Yeah. But again, it's that balance of, well, now if feats are doing even more, mm -hmm. and I think you wrote here, you know, the question of customization versus complication how much I have to read around this feat, how much, mm -hmm. how difficult is it to create my level one character? How brain clogging is the, you know, reaching a level where I choose a feat and I have to go through all of the game's choices for feats at that level or lower, right? Mm -hmm. And then it, it becomes, well, the optimal choice is obviously blank. 
And so now <laughs> where you before want customization, where you want people to be able to build different things, you actually just get more of the same because everybody who takes this race and this uh, background, say, are going to take this feat or this race in this class will take this feat. And it it when it works, it's brilliant, but it's so very, very hard to make work. Um, I mean, I, I haven't seen a game that has sort of feats, advantages, drawbacks, type of thing like this that mm -hmm. that doesn't end up being exploitable, right? It doesn't matter right. if it's Shadowrun or Legend of the Five Rings or anything like yeah. that. When you have that many choices, there's always going to be one that is stronger than it should be or an interaction, right? Fourth edition had things like, you know, oh, when you do cold damage, you do an extra D6. And then people go, well, here's a way I can just generate cold damage constantly. And then right. I add this other benefit and suddenly we've broken the game. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and th there is this, not only does it make the game itself more complicated during play, and not only does it make, you know, running your character more complicated, it makes teaching the game more complicated when you do when you front load choices at first level. So from what I've seen, what we saw in the one D and D playtest was okay, choose a race, you get certain things. Choose a class, obviously at some point, I think, but even before mm -hmm. this, they said that you will choose a class first. Okay, so now you've got your class, you've got your race. Okay, now you're gonna choose a background. But we expect you to build your own background. Yeah. Um, with these various things, including languages, including skill. Oh, and you also get a feat with this. Mm -hmm. That's just piling more and more That's things on to new players. That is way too much. I'm going to give a radical idea here. Uh -oh. Wouldn't the game be better if you only had to make one or two choices at first level? Mm -hmm. And then as the game ramps up, add... Add these choices per level rather than adding class features. So maybe you choose your background at second level. Yeah. Or maybe background is at first level, but your class you choose at second level. And then you choose a feat at third level. And really spread this out so that new players can play the game without all of the choices that we want the game to have, but maybe not at first. Yeah. And advanced players can just say, I already know all of this. I don't need to be taught any of this game. Great. You start at fifth level. And that's where we now think of first level yeah. is fifth level. I'm 100% on board. In fact, I mean, even with fifth edition, which I think is relatively complex at its first couple levels, Way back in Tomb of Annihilation, my campaign, you know, my players were like, can we just start at third? Mm -hmm. Maybe it was fourth. It was at least third. And, yeah. and you know, it's, I'm like, really, they're not that boring first and second level. And, and so yeah. I think you can't make level one and two interesting enough for the super hardcore players. Right. So don't try. Right. And what you really want is, as you're saying, make them the excellent on branding. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with being iconic at level one, be mm -hmm. the iconic rogue, be the iconic fighter, and then develop beyond that mm -hmm. as you get to second. And I, I would absolutely move feats away from level one. I think mm -hmm. level one feats is just asking, I get the concept of it, it sounds clean, but I just think it's a mess of, of, of character creation. 
Um, yeah. You know, I jumped, I jumped in on an online game this weekend, and in about 10 minutes, I made a level one character because I knew what I was doing, and I was playing a class I knew. But mm -hmm. if I hadn't, mm -hmm. I also didn't care about power at all, right? So right. I just, yeah, whatever. You know, I'm a you know, plasmoid, blah, blah, blah. But um, uh, it is so difficult to sit down and go through these things. Yeah. It takes so long. And, and I, I, I think we need to appreciate that more. And, and if we want this game to grow, level one should be just dirt simple. Mm -hmm. And what that would also do, in my opinion, is let us get higher levels. Whereas right now, most campaigns are gone by like level seven or eight at the most. This lets, if you start at level five, you're more likely to get to level 15. Uh, because yeah. the story, you'll be coming to the story fresh. It'll feel like the beginning, but your power level will be high enough that you can, um, yeah. that you and can I still think enjoy background, it. you know, we talked about background last time and, and, and we were sort of advocating that it could be really about that customization. And I think that's where it's time well spent because one of the things that you have to do with a new player is, is free them up, like teach them that it's okay to come up with their concept and how to go about coming up with that concept. Mm -hmm. And that is hard for a player, but a background can actually help you do that. Right. Tell me what you were before. Okay, look at this list of skills, which is not an enormous list. Pick two that you think you used a lot. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, you know, and just a few choices like that, right. I think would make the background actually be a really nice part of character creation in, in the right ways. You move the ability scores to your wherever you're generating abilities. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that would end up being pretty clean. Feats, not clean. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, yeah, that, you know, that's, that's where feats live in my brain. Mm -hmm. I think, I think I agree with you, you know, all along that a great idea, hard to pull off in game design. Um, so move it, move it back a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, spells were the next thing in the playtest packet. Um, and these are sort of reminiscent of what 4E did by giving them categories instead of cl uh, class designations. Yeah. So we have arc arcane spells, divine spells, and primal spells. Thoughts? It's a really interesting concept. So, you know, y your spells are still like, you know, it's a level, level one enchantment or it's level one on the uh, druid list. Mm -hmm. But it also now is a member of one of these three buckets. And new features or feats or racial abilities can say, you know, take a level one divine spell, for example. Mm -hmm. Some classes might do that. Okay, it's an interesting mechanic. Mm -hmm. um, I think it ends up being still dangerous because, you know, like we've talked about before with some of the Unearthed Arcana, is like if you put shield as an option, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there are just certain spells that if you let characters take these things, they will all, anybody who's at all interested in optimization feels like they must make that choice. And so... I'm generally prefer to say, take one of these three spells where the three spells I know are flavorful and colorful and fun rather than optimal because it's just, you, you have to, to help people not be optimal. Should the sorcerer and the wizard have the same spell list? Mm -hmm. Right. For me, the answer is yeah. no. No. Uh, yeah. Right. I don't want my sorcerer casting... Liaman's tiny hut. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want anyone, <laughs> right? I don't want anyone, anyone <laughs> casting it, but right, I, I don't want Liaman to cast it. 
I think that's I think spell list should be cut in a quarter of what it currently is. Mm-hmm. I think you should have some iconic spells that are useful mm-hmm. in certain situations and you, you know they can do damage, they can protect you, they can do a couple of these special things. I think having a spell list that's 30 spells long at each level takes away from the game from for most players. Uh but that's just me. So what do you think about I I'm, I'm I'm with you. I like it. Um what do you think about these inspiration changes? These have been much talked about. <laughs> yeah. I th- I loved the idea of inspiration when I read about it because you know, I've played other games. Yeah. And I like, oh cool, they're trying to bring fate or, you know, some of these other mm-hmm. games where you have this resource in. And as is often the case with D and D, and it's not bad, but I, I say this lovingly, right? It just gets power gamed. It it completely loses what it was meant to do, and it's instantly turned into how can I turn this into a win button? Yeah, and or or even forgotten because it's a resource, and we treat it like we do scrolls and potions, where right. we're so sure that one day there will be the perfect use for it. But right. I better not use it now. Yeah. And I, that's a thing I struggle with because when I play these other role-playing games, whatever these little bennies, chips, chits, whatever's that I'm getting, people go through them like all the time and it's fun. Mm. And it and I don't know why I, I really don't, as a game designer, fully understand why inspiration doesn't work well. But it really doesn't. I and can I've tell tried you. a lot of things at my table. I, I can tell you exactly why. Yeah, go ahead. Right. Please. Because, because the only... The only resource that matters in D&D is hit points. In the long run, mm-hmm. that's that's the only resource that matters. So the only time that you are thinking along those lines, you're not thinking along the lines, or I shouldn't say you and I shouldn't say always. For most people, it's about hitting things and not getting hit. So the only time that you mm-hmm. think about those resources is when you're hitting things and not getting hit. And so inspiration is ignored for the most part until, oh, we really need to hit the monster. Oh, yeah. Jane, Jane rolled a one. Ooh, can we, who has inspiration? Somebody have inspiration? <laughs> it comes to mind when on it's, the failure. it's yeah. on, or, uh, you know, or needing to succeed, but yes. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's the only time it comes up. And what, what I was disappointed in is rather than, for me, rather than fixing the intent of inspiration in the first place, which was let's let's engage role playing, let's make story yeah. count, encourage um, it, yeah, it, it, encourage it. Now it's just like you roll a twenty, okay, now you have inspiration. It's still going to get ignored mm-hmm. uh, until it's used you know, useful, and you can get people fishing for it, and it's it's just going to be. Yeah, and the the new yeah, so the new rules are when you roll a twenty on a d twenty test, which is that new term that covers saving throws, attacks, uh, ability checks, uh, you gain inspiration. So roll twenty, gain inspiration, and um, there are some other ways that you can get it too. But that's now said to be in the rules packet uh, the the main way you should gain it. And what people often said, what you're talking about, is well, you should fish for this, right? You should. You should find ways to roll lots of dice mm-hmm. so that you can get inspiration and then spend it. Um, 
And and I yeah, I but I I almost look at it from the other side, which is why I don't I think most tables have trouble even remembering to use it. Right. Uh, because of that, I, unless you allow rerolls, then people use it all the time. Right. And. I think that inspiration should actually fundamentally change to be something other than it is. You're, you're right that that idea of, of using it before you roll is it doesn't work for people. Mm-hmm. Um, I've played in games that were sort of homebrewed that did things like after you make a roll, you can spend a chip, you know, whatever your unit of currency is, you know, a little, little token that you got through some other means uh, to add a plus two to something. Mm-hmm. And it could be damage, it could be attack, whatever. Yeah. Um, or we even had action points, right? Right. And and something like that, I think, would work better. And probably that it's a smaller bonus so that you could get more of it and be encouraged to generate it more, but not generating it through rolling. Because to me, that is, like you said, getting away from the concept, which the concept was supposed to be to drive story, drive good storytelling right. versus what you rolled. Uh, have it be based on story, have it be a smaller unit of currency, allow it after a roll, after a check, after anything. Um, because then that can be fun, right? Like w- one thing in this like homebrew game that I played, you know, we would attack a foe and you wanted to kill it with that blow, right? Mm-hmm. And you didn't. And you're like, well, I'm going to add three chips, right? So that's, you know, six more damage. All right, it falls. And then you felt cool. Like I right. did kill it with my blow, right? And right. I used up the stuff I generated by doing cool role playing and things like that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's I I can I can respect trying to find new ways to to use it. I just there's already people who ask how can I make the exploration and the role playing pillars more important in my game mechanically as well as right narratively and inspiration might be an answer but not in the current form that it's taking here. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll see what else they can come up with. Um, critical hits and failures. We learn in the playtest packet that critical hits now, when they happen, they will happen only if it's a weapon attack or an unarmed strike. The big thing this does is remove spells from the equation. So you're doing your at will spell attacks. You, you roll, you know, some sort of, Spell attack that cannot crit, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And the crit only doubles weapon dice, not bonuses or other dice. Now, maybe we're going to see classes like the rogue and the paladin have special rules, but at least as it stands now, you know, you're doing sneak attack, you're no longer doubling all the sneak attack dice, you are simply doubling that d6 of your short sword or whatever it is that you attacked with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then crits are only for player characters monsters maybe we'll get something else a video talked about maybe like recharging more often or something but that means every monster has to change um really fascinating all of this Uh, oh the Mm -hmm. other thing is natural ones are now said to auto succeed or auto fail and 20s auto succeed whenever a check could be a success or a failure Mm -hmm. right right so in other words, now saving throws, natural 20, you succeed, natural one that you fail automatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that guidance they give is it only succeeds if it is possible to succeed. Right. Now, the question is, if it's impossible to succeed, DM, why are you even why allowing it? Sure. And, and they mean for things like seeing something beyond your vision or right, you can't fire a, 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 a short bow eight 
thousand feet and hit something because you're rolling natural 20 because it's beyond your range yeah, so right. uh that sort of thing uh so lots of thoughts on this obviously uh, i've got a simple take on this yeah what is it i don't know that any of this needed to change yeah i think that's my biggest thing i'm like yeah okay I, this wasn't a problem in my I, in any of the games I've played. But I, you know, if anything, yeah. I think people might have wanted critical hits to be a little more stronger. Mm -hmm. But this was not an area that I think the game needed to. I, I I think the change about only weapons, only weapon dice doubling, is a good one to help decrease the swinginess of combats. We may see paladins actually now using spell slots for something other than <laughs> waiting to smite when they critic when they hit a, get a critical hit. I, I, I would actually rather that we just say that those powers cannot be added to a crit rather than. I, I, I don't know. I worry that we are we are we're trying to fix a thing elegantly. I don't know that it's an elegant check, and that I think. Some spells critting are problematic, or let's say the use classes that only want to use their at will spells over and over again and are super powerful because of that. That is a design problem that I don't know is about all spells. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. I, I never saw spells being abused as simple spells themselves. And, and then, you know, every once in a while, the, what was the 4D6 spell that uh, clerics cast? Radiant. It was a radiant. Guiding Bolt. Oh. Yeah. Uh, gui you know, Guiding Bolt. Every once in a while, one of those would crit yeah. at first level. Oh, it's beautiful. And, and it'd be everybody. But just as likely, you'd miss with it and sure. waste yeah. a first level slot. So, yeah, yeah I, I'm okay with that. I'm sure that there are builds out there where people were getting it so they could roll, you know, several times and crit I mean, a lot and but that is like like imagine you're a you're a cleric or a sorcerer or a wizard that's all about blasting and you're never critting like that feels so wrong to me yeah i i i know that there's that adrenaline rush of critting mm -hmm. and you know you cheer you got a natural 20 so i i'd love for there to be a way to reward that other than inspiration um you know, or third edition, right? Had the you can't crit on undead or constructs. Yeah. And that was disappointing as all get out or, or, or no sneak attack on them. Like, mm -hmm. I always think these kinds of like prohibitions on a thing that you want to always enjoy uh, just hurt the game. Like, like it, every time a rogue would try to sneak attack an undead, it would just be the most unrewarding thing for that player. And this is going to happen every time someone attacks with a spell and rolls a 20. Like, and then someone's going to do like a check to climb a wall and be like, woo, 20. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 for me, it's, it's the, this question of, you know, the immediate adrenaline rush of this, this thing mm -hmm. versus the long-term impact of a really swingy rule on encounter and, you know, game design. Uh, yeah. So yeah. I, I, I it and I've played a lot of fifth edition mm -hmm. and I never got that feeling from spellcasters, but I got that feeling all the time from rogues and from from uh, sure. yeah paladins yeah, they, from they, paladins they, yeah they, I I I do feel like they 
it's a little too much on that place. Uh, th- though I think fifth edition does a decent job, unlike previous inventions, uh, editions, of making it too easy to crit. Right? There are a lot of ways mm-hmm. before to expand your crit range and right. do things that led to crit upon crit upon crit. Now it is, you know, more often than not, a one in twenty chance. It doesn't mm-hmm. happen very often. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. That, to, to me, this whole bucket is. I, 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 I would just rather not change it. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of monsters not being able to crit, I, I'm okay with that, but it's sort of the same thing. I, I'd like there to be something that happens on a natural 20 that's story-wise makes a difference um, and, and mechanically. So maybe each, every monster has some rule. On a natural 20, if you're hit by blank, this happens. Um, and it could just be as simple as you're not prone um, if you're hit by a giant with a natural 20, um, you know, if they don't already do that. So yeah, I think that could be fun. Like I could see a game like 13th Age having thing like crit, you know, knocks prone, crit pushes right. 20 feet, crit. Yeah. You know? But but then that means every monster has to be updated, which is a problem. Um, mm-hmm. Or an opportunity. More opportunity, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think in general, DMs want to have their fun too, and and yeah, and and there is this feeling that other than at level one, it is so hard to threaten characters. And mm-hmm. sometimes, like you know, you take like when you're fighting one of those high AC people, and you finally crit them, and that crit actually hits, mm-hmm. and you finally get to do some damage. Boy, you need every little bit of that crit damage to feel like it was significant. Now it's going to be like, well, you hit, but does it matter? No. Yeah. Well, yeah, but but you could also do that same thing with high-level monsters to really make, oh, you got hit by the Tarrasque with a natural 20. Uh, you know, you, you die. Mm-hmm. Your, your character is dead. Um, Swallowed and dead. Right. And, and then yeah. that makes those high level monsters where it's almost impossible to challenge a party actually something. So, you know, I suspect D and I mean, I don't know that wizards is going to update all these monsters in, in such thrilling ways because uh, right. you know, I think they worry about that, but yeah, I don't know. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see what the rest of the game does to compensate for that. If this yep. is, if this goes through. Right. Yeah, with a lot of these rules, you need to see everything to know, you know, what the totality would be. So two uh, last changes. Yep, go ahead. Conditions. Uh, some have been revised, like incapacitated now states it breaks concentration. It gives you disadvantage when you roll initiative. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. We have a new condition called slowed, where you move half speed, attacks against you have advantage, and you have disadvantage on dexterity saving throws. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the only question I had about incapacitated was... You have disadvantage on the initiative role if you're incapacitated. How do you become incapacitated uh-huh. outside of combat? Outside of initiative, yeah. Is it is it only like if you're asleep? That... Do you have to roll initiative again? Remember what you had and change right. yourself to the lower one? Yeah, it's it's just <laughs> it's sort of weird, but yeah, you know, little... it's 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 okay. Uh, grappling was was a little weird to me. Uh, it's become an attack is the big change, yeah. and that allows you to to do a lot um, based on that change. Um, I think it's an arguable change. There's a nice writing piece of writing from Paul from the blog of Holding where he provides a, a complete breakdown of what this all means. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think his take home is essentially that, you know, it can be cheesed a little bit more by the right characters uh, because, well, some of the, what this becomes is, do you make grappling something worthwhile? And if it's worth doing, will you then just do it all over all, you know, again and again right. and again, because you can impose disadvantage on something that's restrained. So if it's too easy to do it and takes an action to get out, a character can just grapple the boss. And we saw this in third edition a lot. Oh, yeah. I will just, the monk will just grapple the important thing. In fact, one thing, like my, I had a monk that would grapple a spellcaster and the spellcaster couldn't cast spells anymore. Right. That was the end. And it was worth it because of the action economy, what that spellcaster could do to spend my round doing nothing but blocking that character. And if Mm -hmm. grappling gets too good, you see that kind of play which is less fun than other types of play usually. So you usually don't want to see that. Yeah. This is another one of those people love, players love this idea of the pro wrestler, Mm -hmm. right? Grappling and, but the question is, what does it do mechanically and how does it model in stories, right? You don't see Conan the Barbarian, right? Dropping his sword and running up and, squeezing the bad guy to death because it takes you know 20 hours um so i liked it in fifth edition because it did exactly what it was supposed to do it held someone in place yeah and to to do anything else like you say teos it it begs to be abused yeah Um, it really does it, and, and as much as you might say, well, we don't see much grappling in 5th edition. Well, it's because in most cases, there are better, more fun options. And so right. I'm okay with, you know, I didn't think it needed a change. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, right, if if you want to make a pro wrestling thing, you you take away all of the other benefits and you just have it do damage like a sword would. Mm-hmm. You've still got the flavor of it. You still have, you know, doing whatever. But you don't get all the... You know, reflex or uh, dexterity saving throws halved, all that stuff. The, the weird one to me for for grappling was that in no, it, they may have just left this out as a you know oversight, but you can't use an action to try to break out. You can only break out at the end of your turn to escape a grapple, and if you do that, the end of your turn, then you can't move. So if you start your turn grappled, the <laughs> best you can do as the rule is written right now is to be five feet away from whatever was grappling you at the end there's no other than like using spells or stuff getting away from something that grapples you Hmm. unless i read something wrong yeah i don't know i mean the, the other thing that's different is when you're grappled you now have disadvantage against everybody other than your attacker so it's a little bit like fourth edition marking but um, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 automatically at the end of your turn is interesting, but it is after you take your actions. Right. So it's and and after you know if it's at the end of your turn, it means you can't move, as far as I can tell. Right. 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 So, uh, yeah. The 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 last thing that was, was a little weird was if you are grappling something and you move, you're slowed. So if you pick something up and you try to move with it, then you, well, at half speed, but you 
grant advantage to people that might be attacking you, mm. say with an attack of opportunity, but it only says while you are moving. So mm. if you if you if you move, say you have a movement of 40, you're grappling something. So you move 20 feet. And during that move, you enter and then leave someone's threatened area. Does that attack of opportunity they take have advantage because you're moving? And slowed while you're moving. Now, the person that you're right next to and move away from while you're slowed and grappling does that happen before you're moving or after you're moving? Because usually a, a reaction like that happens before whatever triggers it. So, you know, it's there's all these little minutiae questions that popped into my head that I thought yeah. about, like, that rule. I'm trying to parse it with all the rules I know right now, and it's it's not coming out well. <laughs> yeah, and I, Paul asks some good questions like, can multiple creatures grapple you at once? And what happens at high levels when most creatures will be completely unable to because of the way that proficiency works mm -hmm. uh, and someone specialized in ability score works, you know, it just will become almost impossible to get out of your grapple. And if you can do it with things like flurry of blows, you know, a single attack can establish this grapple and becomes, you know, you now can only attack the thing that grappled you. Mm -hmm. That can just eliminate a creature from a combat but to yeah. me it's really boring play right it's right yeah it it's... has a small tactical benefit but you, by the time you do this the ninth adventure in a row you know ninth encounter in a row it's pretty boring to everybody yeah yeah and we saw that a lot with third edition for sure so yeah it's uh it's something again you know play test they're working on it uh, so we'll see how uh how it's handled in the feedback Whew. well we got we got through uh we got one D&D uh, playtest packet number one. And next week we will continue, unless we get a new packet, uh, we will continue with our look at 5E in general moving forward, going through the player's handbook. So awesome. With that, I want to thank everyone who has listened and who listens to our show. And thank you to all our patrons. Um, you can become a patron of the show. You can help us out by supporting us monetarily by going to the misdirected mark Patre patreon at patreon.com slash mmp uh where can people find you on social media mr abadia i am at alphastream.org from there you can reach me on all the other places like youtube i'm also on twitter at alphastream where are you hiding sean i am proudly standing <laughs> at on twitter at sean merwin the podcast's Twitter handle is at MasteringDND. We also have forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. We also have a YouTube channel where you can comment. It's the Misdirected Mark channel. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, we've survived the first playtest packet of 1D&D, and what are we going to do now? Uh, I'm going to write a letter to the CEO of Wizards of the Coast uh, asking to be placed in charge of D&D. &D. I think that's a good idea. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to crit some monsters and they can't crit me back. 